We did have an amazing interview. I have to tell you, she sent me the questions late last night that she wanted to pursue. I was so impressed. The questions are really great. They were very thoughtful questions. They pointed to someone who is a thinker and someone who is reaching for, you know, the spiritual ground you and I have talked about and worked on. She comes out from that ground, the, the, the ground of self-inquiry. This is the perfect way to start your day, start your business, start your life, change your mentality, understand where your powerfulness comes from. She can help you get there. She gives great advice. She has so much wisdom, so much that you can learn from her. I feel more powerful, in control, and more creative after listening to Sabrina's podcast. I wish I were creating this podcast. Welcome to the Success with Sabrina podcast, sponsored by Time Strategic Consulting Group. Hear from successful businessmen and businesswomen and how they became successful, sharing tips and techniques with you to foster change and build success with ease and flow, helping you overcome your toughest trials and biggest challenges to finally go for it and make money and create the epic life that you deserve. To get more information about our consulting, public speaking, and business success membership club, go to www.timestrategic.com. Welcome to Success with Sabrina podcast. So when I decided to do this podcast, Success with Sabrina, I decided to bring to you candid conversations with the world's most famous rainmakers whose stories of achievement will empower you to discover your greatest and truest vision for your life. I wanted to invite some of the most powerful people, game changers, thinkers in the world. These are the rare few who channel their energy to create good in the world and harness their own experiences to become a force to all that it means to be well and do well in this world. I am honored today that my guest, Susan Dane Seton, has come to share herself with all of us. Please welcome the incomparable Susan Dane Seton. Oh, Sabrina, that's so beautiful. I want to hear it again. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast is for you if you ever feel at the mercy of circumstances, the clock, inherited conditions, and other people's decisions. Or maybe you feel like a victim of your own choices. It is going to help you to go from reactive to causative, as Susan says in The Causative Women, and create radical results in your business and your life. Now, Susan, can we women have it all? Career, family? What does it take to ensure success on both? You know, what people say now is you can have it all, but not all at the same time. And that's true and not true. I think success is also an inner subject because women are famous for never feeling successful. And by successful, I mean enough. So we are famous for striving, running after, moving towards uh, trying to get ahead, and we never quite get anywhere, much less there. So that's what my work really focuses on, which is at at, at, in the first place, addressing this constant push to be more in the name of being better. 
And I examined what that really means because women are, that's what we're first victims of before anything else. And whether we want to or not, we are juggling family, either husband, kids, partners, and parents and pets. (laughs) And we're, we're working full time. So whether we want to or not, we have to figure out how to integrate these in a way that doesn't eat us alive by just constantly pushing us to do more and more. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And what do you wish you knew when you were like in your 20s, 30s for the entrepreneurs (laughs) that are just starting out, building a family and career? What is it that you wish you knew? Oh, wow. I think I wish I knew everything that I know now. (laughs) I would say first and foremost, this using um, everything outside ourselves as a point of reference to define whether we're on mark whether we're moving in the right direction, and whether we've achieved anything. We are, by nature, I think, extremely accommodating. And yes, we've been schooled that way as women. Yes, we've been trained that way by society. But also, we are, by nature, empathic and inclusive. And as I I say in my talk, which is titled From Shoppers to Shapers, How Women Will Define the 21st Century, that's the title of my keynote, We have, I say, a biological advantage. And that advantage is from the time we're very, very little girls, we know we have this space inside our tummies that can carry another human being, that can carry a baby. So from the time we're little and whether or not we ever fulfill on the potential of having children, we are, by biology, always, from the the time we're very young, we're in relation to another. And as we get older and as we become adults, that means being in relation to others. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge advantage in today's age when this single line, uh, strive, grind, uh, crush it, dominate language that makes life and business sound like a football game. (laughs) We have an enormous advantage of women of what we can bring to the conversation, which is community, inclusive, empathic, and sympathetic. Yes. And I also tend to think that women are very strategic in the sense that uh, we can, I mean, if we, if we were to be given a challenge, like we always can come up with the best strategies on how to conquer and how to tackle that. So I love that. I, I agree with that. I think you're absolutely right. We are strategic. But, you know, I was thinking about something this morning regarding women and strategy, I think we lack, I think we, we need support. I mean, I think we have to develop the skill of long-term strategy because we are such rescuers and we're firefighters. You know, when most women, either even if we haven't been parents or mothers, we, we were raised by parents and particularly our mothers, we saw them putting out a million fires in a day. If, particularly if you grew up with siblings, it wasn't your fire, it was your sister's fire, right? And mom was always there to come up with a solution. So I was thinking about that today, how so many women I know, and I would certainly have said this to my 20-year-old self, my 23-year-old self, that's when I really launched. Uh, and I launched, coincidentally, as an international tour director for taking 250 Americans abroad a week. And it was nothing but firefighting because I had to make sure those 250 Americans had the trip of a lifetime. And that meant accommodating every single need. I'd get a call at two in the morning in Spain. How do you say Coca-Cola in Spanish? You know, stuff like 
<laughs> and so I was just the queen of accommodation. Yeah. And I love and, where you're going with this because um, I think also that as we develop our leadership, we're able to realize that sometimes empowering people has to do with giving them the space to come up with the solutions to their own problems, right? So we leave the space of trying to solve everybody's problems to asking good questions and allowing people that space so that they can also make mistakes sometimes. And I'm talking about our employees, our kids, our, the people that are in our teams, right? Like it's so important uh, to have that kind of leadership. So I love it. So what do you think is the biggest battle that we're fighting today as women? I think I think it is this question of when is enough enough? And I'm not talking about enough possessions or enough uh, whatever, cars, promotions, money. I'm talking about enough where we have decided internally and externally that we are enough, that we're doing enough. And strangely enough, the women's empowerment movement does not actually cure this. They don't. They, they actually promote it. They fan the fires with all kinds of great sl- slogans like "Do more, be more." And as you were starting this conversation, saying you can have it all, be it all, do it all, and that's not a good way. That's not a good slogan for women because we are already overdoers, overgivers. Of course, I'm speaking in gross generalities, but the tendency is that we're overgivers and never enoughers. So I think we have to be careful with the kinds of slogans we adopt and the jargon we use and the conversations we buy into. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I want to I want to get deeper into all of these conversations that we buy into inherited conversations as you would say. Uh, so what is it that you yes. wish you knew when you were in your 20s, 30s? Like for the woman entrepreneur that's starting off right now trying to juggle it all, like you said, you know, family, career, business, and, um, and it's, it's, it can be very stressful at times. So what would it be it, like it, one right. single thing that you wish you knew when you were in your 20s or 30s? Uh, I've got a good one. It's that everything we do, let's just say we have a goal or an intention, and we set off after it. We don't fully understand, even at any age, but specifically when we're young, that every step we take towards accomplishing it, not one of those steps looks anything like the end result we're going towards. So if we don't have a recipe or, or a, a guidebook of some kind, a, guide, a, a mentor or a guide, we are going to get lost. And the analogy I use to make that really clear is if we've never seen a cake baked in our entire life and we've never, all we've done is taste cakes, but we've never been in a kitchen, we've never seen anyone bake a cake, but we see this beautiful cake and we ask the baker, can I have the recipe or will you share it? Or we ask whatever, we find it online and they give us this written recipe, right? And we get all of our ingredients out on the counter board and we go about to, t- to start making our cake. But when you, the first step is you break these eggs in a bowl and you got some yellow eggs in a bowl, it doesn't look like a cake. So you beat the eggs because that's the next step and that doesn't look like a cake. And then you add some sugar, it tastes a little better, but that doesn't look like a cake. And at every step of this recipe, we have nothing that resembles a cake. You're with me? Yeah, yeah. And then we finally pour it into some pans, still doesn't look like a cake, but it looks better than we had just beaten eggs. We put it in an oven, we still don't have our cake. And I think the lesson I would share with every young person and every, and we're young, no matter what age we are, if we are just starting our entrepreneurial career, if we're just starting our company, then we're young. We're the same 
stage, though not the same age, we're the same stage as someone in their 20s. And the, the, the thing I would say to every young person starting their business at whatever age is that nothing you're going to do looks like the end result. And that's where we get discouraged and feel lost. Yeah. But if you have the right recipe and you have the right mentor and you're in the right kitchen, step by step by step of doing all these things that bear no resemblance to where we're going or what we want, they will pay off and we will end up with that cake. I love this analogy so much, you know. Um, and also, I think it brings a little bit of uh, hope, I guess, for the entrepreneurs out there that are uh, a little bit more risk takers and perhaps not so so good at following recipes, right? Um, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I, I used to hate to bake because I love cooking, but I love free spirits cooking, right? Like, and, and I felt so confined when I had to follow a recipe uh, to the T, right? And, and right. so baking for me was very risky because sometimes it would not turn out very well. <laughs> Particularly that quarter of a teaspoon of salt. You're baking an entire cake. They say a quarter of a teaspoon of salt. I'd always rebel when it got to the salt. Like, why a quarter and a teaspoon? <laughs> For the rebellious spirits out there, right? But I think also it's very important for us to know that it's not going to look like it, right, as we're going about it. But I love this analogy because it tells us that just trust, trust the process, right? And also that everything that you've done in your life leads you up to something else and everything is going to serve you well, even if it doesn't even look like it's correlated or anything, everything is intertwined. So in the end, it's going to help you to become who you're becoming as a businesswoman. I think that's so true. Yeah, yeah. So why, does it, why is it so important for us to find purpose in our lives? Why do we need purpose in our lives? I think in today's age, we are, uh, there's a constant onslaught of what's the point. We are really bombarded, particularly in this specific last six weeks, with death, hopelessness, potential pandemic. We were already looking at a potential pandemic for the planet. Now, you know, who cares? None of us might be around to even enjoy the, the earth pandemic, right? So I think with the onslaught of sensational, I call it sensationalism terrorism, meaning it's just promoting terrorism. We don't have something to anchor ourselves and our life to that is greater than the day-to-day news. They call it news. There's not very much news about it. For me, purpose relates to having our true north. It's not an end result for me so much as it's a line that I'm moving on. And intention is that line. I should say intention is everything that we hang on that line regarding productivity, communication, strategy, teamwork, everything that we hang on that line, which is a direction in which we are moving. And that to me is purpose. And process is more about purpose than purpose being some end result, because you're never going to get to that end result. You know, the richest people, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, they're not there yet. They're not there yet. So I think the less we think of purpose as a there, as a, as a point that we're getting to, and the more we think of purpose as the way we get, not get things, but get on the road, the way we get, the way we stay on our path and where we're going, the direction we're pointing in, this is what keeps us anchored and keeps us filled with hope 
rather than constantly having to fill ourselves with a new a new tank every day. Yeah, yeah. And with that question comes the, the, the with the purpose question comes that unique mission that I feel like so many of us are born with that sense of uh, I got to make a difference in this world in in this life. So what is it about that uh, that that would help us guide us uh, in the right direction? I guess that sense of being having that unique mission. I love that question because um, we're each born. As an individual, we are each a miracle that has never, ever happened before. That unique, what you call it, combination, that unique identity. We each have a voice and we each have a print. And nobody, nobody has that voice, has ever had that voice or that print. And something interesting about destiny and voice as they tie together is voice actually means, in French, voice and lane coming from the Latin roots, lane, like the lane on a highway, it's the exact same word. Our voice is the lane that we are in. And our destiny is a divine, um, uh, how can I describe it, responsibility, but it's not a personal responsibility, it's a divine responsibility. Uh, And no one can do it. So in one sense, we can feel like it's all up to me. Well, you are up to you and I'm up to me in more than one sense. I'm up to me and it's up to me to be me. But destiny is something we don't talk enough about. And as you know, in my causative woman programs, that's what I focus on is getting in the driver's seat of your own destiny. Mm-hmm. And again, like we were talking about before, getting past the day-to-day implementation and keeping our sights on, keeping our conversation on the bigger picture, and how we pursue that thread. I call it the destinal thread, the thread of who we were born to be and who we live to be. Have you ever experienced divine intervention in the pursuit of who you are becoming? Have you experienced that that moment that you call it divine intervention? And do you have a different word for it? When you say divine intervention, do you mean something that comes in and and either rescues us from a disaster or really helps us take a right turn where we thought we were heading left? Or are you talking about sort of like in, getting an initial launch by a divine message? I would say both, right? Because yeah. it just seems like in, at moments in our lives, uh, you meet the right person or you take some kind of action that gears you in a different direction than, than the previous that you're going. And it almost feels like magical. And, um, and so that's what I'm referring to that sense that something magical just happened. Like you can't really explain it, but you feel that it's magical. I, I totally, I don't just believe in this. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I, I teach it. I rely on it. As you said, on both levels, first by the way it launched me, I, I, I was studying, I had a, a three-year period, uh, after a very, very successful career in international tourism. I had a three-year period where uh, everything had crashed. I, I had a failed marriage. I was raising a child alone, a baby alone. I couldn't work in my international travel and be a mom. So I, I was destitute of hope, direction, lost touch with my identity and my destiny, all of those things. And it, it thrust me into a very deep three-year um, spiritual search, studying all kinds of scriptures and uh, mystics, multiple traditions, and really seeking my own answers and getting totally in touch with the voice 
that I think I'd sensed as a child. This is something I think you were alluding to. We have a sense when we're kids and then life seems to very, very consistently erode it. Like it just washes it and scrapes it away. And so it was those three years, which were three of the hardest years of my life, which was one of the first serious divine interventions. Like, Susan, you can travel all over the world and see every country in the world, but guess what? Every place you go, you bring you. And there's (laughs) going to be something desperately familiar. I was up in Machu Picchu in Peru when I said, you know, this is like the eighth time I've been here and it just feels sort of normal still, like normal again. And I realized, you're here. The first time, <laughs> I realized first time you weren't here. It was just Machu Picchu. Oh my gosh. And then after the sixth time, it's like, you're here. And I didn't want that same eye. I didn't want her to be coming. And so I spent three years really changing that. That was the big thrust. But on a daily level, on a daily basis, I listen for that divine intervention. I'm poised. I'm always like, you know, like a football player when you see them and they're in the air ready to catch that ball and it may not come to them, but they're ready to catch it. And that's how I try to live my life and encourage everybody to. Yeah. Yeah. The sense of identity that you're talking about, because I once heard that most interesting people, they reinvent themselves. And so it's very, very cool to hear this process of you talking about, you know, finding some things about you that weren't necessarily in alignment with who you want it to be and then having the courage to face that, right? And to change it and to reinvent yourself. And, And it gives us freedom to know that we don't have to hold on to all of those things that don't really serve us. I know this is something that can be beneficial to all of our listeners because as we go through stages in our businesses and in our lives, there will be constant change um, of everything. And so understanding that that's natural and part of the process and and not putting yourself down because, um, you know, I used to think that because I changed my mind a lot, I was too wishy-washy. You know, I used to say like, man, you know, like I can't be decided on anything, but it's not really about that. It's really about being curious and being open. And that's something that is actually a great quality to have. It is. And when you talk about reinvention and reinventing ourselves, I'll say this, speaking from my own experience, you tell me if it rings any bells with you. I think we reinvent ourselves in terms of the how or the activity, specifically in terms of marketing and branding. You can reinvent yourself many times, but once you really find that decimal thread, once you hear it, once you get a sense of the direction in which you've got to go, and by direction, I don't mean, I'll find a new demographic. That's not what I mean. (laughs) I mean, you really find what you're here for and what you cannot die without unless you're willing to really feel like you didn't live. In other words, you find the thing that you have to finish, you have to accomplish. And then that's not a reinvention. That's really, I think, when God takes over your life And it sort of says, I'll be taking it from here on in, Susan. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) And from that point on, you can change demographics. You can change um, audience. You know, you can change platforms. Maybe you're going to write more instead of speak more. You can change all kinds of things. That's reinvention. But finding that destinal thread and finding who you are meant to be, et cetera, that isn't your reinvention. That's your discovery of who and what you are that no one else is. Yeah, yeah. And for those of, uh, of, of, of the people out there listening that feel like they haven't found that yet, 
um, how do they go about uh, finding that inner voice or that uniqueness, I guess? I love that question. I've puzzled over it a long time because of my clients over years. You know, I've done personal counseling and spiritual counseling work for 30 years. And I know so many people who are still stuck in first gear because you're saying, but what is it? What is it? What is it? What am I supposed to do? It's a what. And that's the trick. It's not a what. It's more of a way. The what can change. We think of some of the master branders of our times in business, like Richard Branson and and Bill Gates and so many other truly, you know, big, big, successful, financially successful people. I love Richard Branson because he can launch cruise ships, uh, astronaut ships, you know, uh, rockets. He could sell records. He could start with ladies lingerie. We would just say, oh, that's Richard Branson. No problem. Right. Yeah, he, he has dabbed into so many different industries that have right. nothing to do with one another, right? And that's something right. amazing for an entrepreneur. Yeah, it is. Sure. So I think that question that you're asking is, is always, we always get off track when we're saying, but what is it? We will never start. Rather than who am I? And, and here's how I would say to start asking that question, is to focus on voice, on what you want to say that no one else is saying. Many, many books have been written, probably more books than not, have been written when somebody had an idea, they were looking for something, they wanted to find a book on it, they went to the bookstore and there was no book on it. So they said, darn it, I got to write it. (laughs) Same thing. If you're looking for a teacher who will illuminate whatever it is and you can't find them, then that's your that's your message, that's your voice. If you can find them, it's not your voice. That voice is taken. So one way to find your voice, I have two little guideposts. What is it that you would say if nobody were listening? If there's no risk of somebody judging, of it being ahead of its time or behind its time, what would you say if no one were listening? Not if everyone were listening, if no one was listening. And secondly, what is it you would say that you don't want to say? wish somebody else would say, that you hope to find the book, that you go to the conference looking for the person to say it, Mm -hmm. you will never find them. That's yours. And if you pursue those two questions, instead of, should I be a doctor, a lawyer, or an Indian chief, as we used to say, or a candlestick maker or a baker, stop looking for the what. That is actually just the how. Mm -hmm. Instead, look for the who. And that who is defined by those two questions. Not defined by it, but those two questions will help you find your who. And what could stand in the way of such quest? What could work against it? What could be like the resistance towards it? Right. So people think it's a lack of courage, fear of what people will think. All of that's true. It's it's a little deeper than that. It's a two-year-old. It's a two-year-old saying, I don't want to. I know this two-year-old so well. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when your mom and dad said, you know what you need to do is such and such or put on your raincoat or no, I don't want it. No, the logic of a two-year-old of I don't want to has no sense because for most of us, when our parents told us to do something, there was some logic to it. There was some sense. It was a protective sense, wasn't it? But it doesn't matter when you're two years old and three years old and four years old, you just don't want to. And that is at the root of it. I'll do it my way. Thank you very much. And some of it is I rather just pray 
and say that my prayers haven't been answered. I haven't seen the light. I don't have the picture. I can't, I didn't get the message. We're exonerated because we've been looking so hard, Sabrina, and trying so hard. So we're exonerated, right? We're doing everything we can. And we blame life or we blame the divine for not giving us the secret message. It's not true. It's right there in front of our eyes, waiting for us to stop saying, mm, not now, mm, not quite ready, mm, not me. That's all it is. And it's not about courage. It's about stubborn defiance, I think. Courage, you need along the way, and you'll certainly lack it. <laughs> but it's not the main thing. The main thing is, you know what you're here to do. You know what you're supposed to say. You know what you're supposed to stand for. And you don't want to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How, do you, how would you go about helping, let's say, a client that shows those signs of... Uh, that defiance that is not really going to be helpful, right? The kind of defiance, because I mean, obviously everything is a paradox, right? So, I mean, you right. can have the kind of defiance that uh, allows you to come into your freedom, but you can have the kind of defiance that keeps you hostage to, to not letting it come out, right? Hostage exactly. to a self that doesn't really serve you or serves the web, let it alone, um, you know, the little corner of the world that you could be making influence or a difference at. Um, how, how would you advise someone to go about facing this defiance, I guess? I love that question. Um, how do we go about facing the defiance and whether we ever defeat it, but at least becoming its master to some degree? I love that. Um, well, that's what the Causative Women program and training really focuses on. And the way I say it is we're all hanging on to something that doesn't serve us. We don't want it. And this gets back to, I'll interrupt myself. <laughs> uh, this gets back to what you were talking about, inherited conversations. We have things that we carry around with us. They don't serve us. We don't want them. We, quote, like to get rid of them. But at the same time, we are hanging on to them for dear life. And the, there is a way to to learn how to unclasp that hold, right? But it's not by chanting or uh, affirmations or anything like that, because that's just putting more data into an overstuffed bank, so to speak. There's a way to um, dismantle its hold, uh, which is, I don't want it. I don't need it. It doesn't serve me, but quote, I can't let it go. And that's the work I do specifically in the Causative Women course and in the Causative Women subsequent programs, the graduate program. We learn what that defiance is made of and how to, I would say, play with it, how to take it apart without you feeling threatened or the defiance itself just reacting. So it's not, it, I can't go into detail here, but there is a way. It's to see what it's made of, up of and see through it rather than try to crush it, overcome it, oppress it, talk at it is a different way, which is a lot easier. It's actually quite fun, a little bit funny and extremely effective. And it makes you causative, makes women causative instead of as you introduce the subject today, instead of living life reactively. Yeah, yeah, that would be so wonderful if we if we finally get to a place that we're a lot less reactive and a lot more causative, right? Um, also, I think it has a little bit, I, I, I don't know, it might be just an interesting point of view, right? Uh, but I, I'm curious to find out from you, 
Uh, as you know, we're focusing mostly on women. This podcast is not only for entrepreneur women, uh, but I know that you have worked with a lot of women, and um, and I know that you can help uh, a lot of women to to face all of the things that they're trying to accomplish because you have faced it yourself. And how does age really? Uh, what would it mean to age well, in your opinion? I'm curious about that. For Great. women especially, I think. Yeah, how to age well. I do want to just say that I've only focused on women in the last year. Up for the, Really, most of my career, I've always, the work is, is absolutely um, homogeneous. It's actually totally integrated for men or women because what I focus on is the human condition, the phenomena we find as human beings that we're all facing, but we somehow think this is my own very personal problem or my very own personal shortcoming. So I wanted to add that parenthetically. And I think for men and women, both aging is, is a challenge. And I would, uh, I think, let's see, I think I would frame it, Sabrina, in the context of stages, what I call stages. As I mentioned earlier, if you are in your 50s or 60s, but you're actually, because you've raised a family or whatever you've been doing in the interim, you're launching a new career parallel to a 23-year-old, you're something at the same stage in life. You're just beginning something anew. But the difference is the age factor. So whereas an older person might be thinking of this stage as their third act, a younger person is thinking of it as their first act, right? Or their first main act. And um, or their second act where they're really going to build their career, their empire, their, their mission. And I think the challenge with age is the conversation around it is you've had your run. You've, you have to sort of begin to wind down, pack it in, uh, dismantle things, get rid of stuff so that when you make an exit, it's, it's, it's a clean exit and you don't create too much. You don't leave too much stuff behind and too much problems for other people. It's a current. And that current is created by conversations around it. Of course, what we're seeing now is, you know, 70 is the new 50 and 80 is the new 60. So we have to redesign what aging is. And there is no question that aging, that to age grace, not gracefully, because that's one of those sayings, but to age uh, powerfully and to stay causative, you have to stay curious, you have to renew that vision, and you have to be extremely alert to the context and the conversation, I'll say context, conversation, and the current that is always pulling you to decline, to decline, and instead lean in, incline yourself to an infinite future. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. Do you find that also that different cultures deal with this in a different way? I mean, I know that you have, uh, your husband is from France, you've lived in so many different countries and, and been in associated with so many different cultures. Uh, what is it that we Americans can learn from different countries when it comes to aging and reinventing yourself or uh, like you were saying earlier in building businesses that have significance and purpose and a mission and all of that? Well, I think it's sort of a broad subject because we go from aging to building businesses. But just to touch on aging first, you know, as a Brazilian, <laughs> uh, Latin cultures have a completely different relationship to um, 
to women as they age. Uh, France, particularly, I'm lucky. France has a fixation with older women. I mean, they think women come into their prime around age 50. It's great. You're walking down the street in America. You're invisible. You walk down the street in France and they're like, wow, look at that. So it's sort of fun. I think in Arab cultures, it's different still. In Asian cultures, there's a great respect for the woman as the sage as she gets older. So it's a different thing. It's not quite so lively and so sexy and so fun. Um, Americans are very fixated on youth. I think there's something in the culture that invites it. We are disposable, not just we are disposable. We live in a disposable culture. We live in a culture where products are, uh, are designed with planned obsolescence. They are strategized. Computers are designed. Why, don't we, why can't we get a five-year insurance plan for our computers? Because they are specifically designed to last no more than three years. Yeah. And um, everything is young, maybe because we're a young country and maybe because in America we were always expanding into new, into virgin, into uncharted territories, right? There's not quite so much uncharted territory in a woman who's 65. So just as a culture, consumerism is by nature, and our, our society is extremely consumeristic. Um, we are disposable. We throw things away. Um, we're proud for many, many years, decades in America. We were very proud that we could throw everything away. Um, in foreign countries, as you know, well, Brazil is a young country, but in Europe, they had to recycle. You know, they had to use every every ounce of the animal they slaughtered and every piece of the grain that they harvested. So I think it's a, a psychology that is uh, defined uh, geographically mm -hmm. and uh, ours is defined in terms of consumerism. And it's at an enormous loss. We, we waste huge resources because people over 60, over 55 have so much to give because they've made so many mistakes already. They're not going to repeat them. Yes, absolutely. So as we go back into women that you admire, um, if you could choose a woman to have dinner with, and um, it could be from the past, from the present, who would she be? <laughs> well, as more and more women become famous, and <laughs> we dig them up from history, right? They didn't even exist, and now we discover that they defined their century or their decade. So that's a difficult question. Um, and I'm a quite a latecomer to the subject of feminism, which is why I call it the new feminism, because I'm, I'm not exactly joining the feminism of the 60s. I missed all that. So, but I would say that probably one of a handful of women I am fascinated by is Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who founded the women's movement in the United States of America. And um, because of her radical spirit, first of all, she was a mother. She had seven children. After five, she kept saying there would be no more. And there were two more. And back then, I'll just mention that women nursed their children for 18 to 24 months. So when you had a child, it was a three-year commitment. In spite of this, she launched this movement. It spread throughout the United States. She almost did it single-handedly. Susan B. Anthony joined her later. And in her last years, as an older woman, with enormous spiritual foundation and spiritual drive, she um, was ousted out of her own movement because of her radical commitment and belief and her writings that said God was a divine, whether you call it principle or being, that incorporated all of the female qualities as well as the male. And the women's movement said, we can't have this kind of radical redefinition of God going on when we're trying to get the vote and so they expelled her from her own movement when she was in her late 70s or 80s. 
And uh, they moved forward thinking the vote alone would define things, which we have seen it has not. Because if we don't have that ground and that destiny embedded in the actions that we are taking, if we're not on that line of intention going towards where we're going, and if we get waylaid by the stops on the line, like getting the vote, we will lose our true north. And she was someone who never did, but we lost her in the process. That's a very interesting story. And so many people are considering themselves spiritual nowadays, but not wanting to be affiliated to any specific church or, um, I guess, uh, religion. Uh, Why is it that you decided, uh, because I know you spent some time uh, affiliated with certain institutions, and now you've, you've come to a more secular Uh, in your efforts, uh, why is it that you've made that move and what does that mean to all of us? Mm. Good question. Um, So it does sound secular and I'm still working at trying to evolve a language that can be spiritual without being a specific sect because you end up with either sect or secular. What I didn't want in my own work was anything that said to anybody, you're on the outside of something that I'm on the inside of. And as soon as you get in to my circle, club, language, creed book, then you're going to have something you don't have now. I think that's fatal. I think that's wrong. I just think it's wrong, meaning incorrect. So I was looking for a language that would focus people on their innate spirituality, meaning their innate, what every single person has, which is their relationship to divine guidance to divine uh, beingness, um, which is not them, but which they fully express and have access to. Uh, So it's not that we're all gods, but we all have a relationship to that which is God. And um, I just wanted something that not was inclusive, but that was by its infinite nature, couldn't be inclusive because it couldn't be exclusive. I mean, you have inclusive, you have exclusive. And spirituality is not exclusive. It's its nature. Yeah, you, you didn't want to create something that would go with like us and them, right? Exactly. You wanted, uh-huh. Yeah, that's really cool. And um, what is it that as we are coming close to the end of this beautiful interview, talking about women and spirituality and voice and finding our purpose, what is one thing that you feel that we should have talked about and we didn't address today. <laughs> oh my gosh. You have such an innate uh, breadth, you know, you, your, your way you articulate and your vision and your ability to encapsulate is, is just so furthering of a conversation. We did have an amazing interview. I have to tell you, she sent me the questions late last night that she wanted to pursue. I was so impressed. The questions are really great. They were very thoughtful questions. They pointed to someone who is a thinker and someone who is reaching for, you know, the spiritual ground you and I have talked about and worked on. She comes out from that ground, the the, the ground of self-inquiry. This is the perfect way to start your day, start your business, start your life, change your mentality, understand where your powerfulness comes from. She can help you get there. She gives great advice. She has so much wisdom, so much that you can learn from her. I feel more powerful, in control, and more creative after listening to Sabrina's podcast.
I wish I were creating this podcast. Welcome to the Success with Sabrina podcast, sponsored by Time Strategic Consulting Group. Hear from successful businessmen and businesswomen and how they became successful sharing tips and techniques with you to foster change and build success with ease and flow, helping you overcome your toughest trials and biggest challenges to finally go for it and make money and create the epic life that you deserve. To get more information about our consulting, public speaking, and business success membership club, go to www.timestrategic.com. Welcome to Success with Sabrina podcast. So when I decided to do this podcast, Success with Sabrina, I decided to bring to you candid conversations with the world's most famous rainmakers whose stories of achievement will empower you to discover your greatest and truest vision for your life. I wanted to invite some of the most powerful people, game changers, thinkers in the world. These are the rare few who channel their energy to create good in the world and harness their own experiences to become a force to all that it means to be well and do well in this world. I am honored today that my guest, Susan Dane Seton, has come to share herself with all of us. Please welcome the incomparable Susan Dane Seton. Oh, Sabrina, that's so beautiful. I want to hear it again. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is for you if you ever feel at the mercy of circumstances, the clock, inherited conditions, and other people's decisions. Or maybe you feel like a victim of your own choices. It is going to help you to go from reactive to causative as Susan says in The Causative Women, and create radical results in your business and your life. Now, Susan, can we women have it all? Career, family, what does it take to ensure success on both? You know, what people say now is you can have it all, but not all at the same time. And that's true and not true. I think success is also an inner subject because women are famous for never feeling successful and by successful, I mean enough. So we are famous for striving, running after, moving towards, uh, trying to get ahead. And we never quite get anywhere, much less there. So that's what my work really focuses on, which is at at in the first place, addressing this constant push to be more in the name of being better. And I examined what that really means because women are... That's what we're first victims of before anything else. And whether we want to or not, we are juggling family, either ki husband, kids, partners, and parents and pets. <laughs> and we're, we're working full time. So whether we want to or not, we have to figure out how to integrate these in a way that doesn't eat us alive by just constantly pushing us to do more and more. Yes, yes, absolutely. And what do you wish you knew when you were like in your 20s, 30s for the entrepreneurs <laughs> that are just starting out, building a family and career? What is it that you wish you knew? Oh, wow. I think I wish I knew everything that I know now. 
<laughs> I would say first and foremost, this using um, everything outside ourselves as a point of reference to define whether we're on mark, whether we're moving in the right direction, and whether we've achieved anything. We are, by nature, I think, extremely accommodating. And yes, we've been schooled that way as women. Yes, we've been trained that way by society. But also, we are, by nature, empathic and inclusive. And as I, I say in my talk, which is titled From Shoppers to Shapers, How Women Will Define the 21st Century, that's the title of my keynote, we have... I say, a biological advantage. And that advantage is from the time we're very, very little girls, we know we have this space inside our tummies that can carry another human being, that can carry a baby. So from the time we're little and whether or not we ever fulfill on the potential of having children, we are, by biology, always, from the, from the time we're very young, we're in relation to another and as we get older and as we become adults, that means being in relation to others. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge advantage in today's age when this single line, uh, strive, grind, uh, crush it, dominate language that makes life and business sound like a football game. We have an enormous advantage of women, of what we can bring to the conversation, which is community, inclusive, empathic, and sympathetic. Yes. And I also tend to think that women are very strategic in the sense that uh, we can, I mean, if we, if we were to be given a challenge, like we always can come up with the best strategies on how to conquer and how to tackle that. So I love that. I, I agree with that. I think you're absolutely right. We are strategic. But, you know, I was thinking about something this morning regarding women and strategy, I think we lack, I think we, we need support. I mean, I think we have to develop this skill of long-term strategy because we are such rescuers and we're firefighters. You know, when most women, either even if we haven't been parents or mothers, we've, we were raised by parents and particularly our mothers, we saw them putting out a million fires in a day. If, particularly if you grew up with siblings, it wasn't your fire, it was your sister's fire, right? And mom was always there to come up with a solution. So I was thinking about that today, how so many women I know, and I would certainly have said this to my 20-year-old self, my 23-year-old self, that's when I really launched. Uh, and I launched, coincidentally, as an international tour director for taking 250 Americans abroad a week. And it was nothing but firefighting because I had to make sure those 250 Americans had the trip of a lifetime. And that meant accommodating every single need. I'd get a call at two in the morning in Spain. How do you say Coca-Cola in Spanish? You know, stuff like that. <laughs> and so I was just the queen of accommodation. Yeah. And I love and, where you're going with this because um, I think also that as we develop our leadership, we're able to realize that sometimes empowering people has to do with giving them the space to come up with the solutions to their own problems, right? So we leave the space of trying to solve everybody's problems to asking good questions and allowing people that space so that they can also make mistakes sometimes. And I'm talking about our employees, our kids, our, the people that are in our teams, right? Like it's so important uh, to have that kind of leadership. So I love it. So what do you think is the biggest battle that we're fighting today as women? I think 
I think it is this question of when is enough enough. And I'm not talking about enough possessions or enough uh, whatever, cars, promotions, money. I'm talking about enough where we have decided internally and externally that we are enough, that we're doing enough. And strangely enough, the women's empowerment movement does not actually cure this. They don't, they, they actually promote it. They fan the fires with all kinds of great sl- slogans like do more, be more. And as you were starting this conversation saying you can have it all, be it all, do it all. And that's not a good way. That's not a good slogan for women because we are already overdoers, overgivers. Of course, I'm speaking in gross generalities, but the tendency is that we're overgivers and never enoughers. So I think we have to be careful with the kinds of slogans we adopt and the jargon we use and the conversations we buy into. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I want to I wanna get deeper into all of this conversations that we buy into, inherited conversations, as you would say. Uh, so what is it that you yes. wish you knew when you were in your 20s, 30s? Like for the woman entrepreneur that's starting off right now, trying to juggle it all, like you said, you know, family, career, business. And, um, and it's, it's, it can be very stressful at times. So what would it be it, like it, one okay. single thing that you wish you knew when you were in your 20s or 30s? Uh, I've got a good one. It's that everything we do, let's just say we have a goal or an intention and we set off after it. We don't fully understand, even at any age, but specifically when we're young, that every step we take towards accomplishing it, not one of those steps looks anything like the end result we're going towards. So if we don't have a recipe or, or a, a guidebook of some kind, a guide, a, a mentor or a guide, we are going to get lost. And the analogy I use to make that really clear is if we've never seen a cake baked in our entire life and we've never, all we've done is taste cakes, but we've never been in a kitchen. We've never seen anyone bake a cake, but we see this beautiful cake and we ask the baker, can I have the recipe or will you share it? Or we ask whatever, we find it online and they give us this written recipe, right? And we get all of our ingredients out on the counter board and we go about to, t- to start making our cake. But when you, the first step is you break these eggs in a bowl and you got some yellow eggs in a bowl. It doesn't look like a cake. So you beat the eggs because that's the next step and that doesn't look like a cake. And then you add some sugar, it tastes a little better, but that doesn't look like a cake. And at every step of this recipe, we have nothing that resembles a cake. You're with me? Yeah. Yeah. And then we finally pour it into some pans, still doesn't look like a cake, but it looks better than we had just beaten eggs. We put it in an oven. We still don't have our cake. And I think the lesson I would share with every young person and every, and we're young, no matter what age we are, if we are just starting our entrepreneurial career, if we're just starting our company, then we're young. We're the same stage, though not the same age. We're the same stage as someone in their 20s. And the, the, the thing I would say to every young person starting their business at whatever age is that nothing you're going to do looks like the end result. And that's where we get discouraged and feel lost. If you have the right recipe and you have the right mentor and you're in the right kitchen, step by step by step of doing all these things that bear no resemblance to where we're going or what we want, they will pay off and we will end up with that cake. (laughs) I love this analogy so much, you know, um, and also, I think it brings a little bit of uh, hope, I guess, for the entrepreneurs out there that are 
uh, a little bit more risk takers and perhaps not so so good at following recipes, right? Um, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I I used to hate to bake because I love cooking, but I love free spirit cooking, right? Like, and and I felt so confined when I had to follow a recipe uh, to the T, right? And, and right. so baking for me was really risky because sometimes it would not turn out very well. <laughs> Particularly that quarter of a teaspoon of salt. You're baking an entire cake. They say a quarter of a teaspoon of salt. I'd always rebel when it got to the salt. Like. Why a quarter and a teaspoon? <laughs> for the rebellious spirits out there, right? But I think also it's very important for us to know that it's not going to look like it, right, as we're going about it. But I love this analogy because it tells us that just trust, trust the process, right? And exactly. also that everything that you've done in your life leads you up to something else and everything is going to serve you well, even if it doesn't even look like it's correlated or anything, everything is intertwined. So in the end, it's going to help you to become who you're becoming as a businesswoman. I think that's so true. Yeah, yeah. So why, does it, why is it so important for us to find purpose in our lives? Why do we need purpose in our lives? I think in today's age, we are, uh, there's a constant onslaught of what's the point we are really bombarded, particularly in this specific last six weeks, with death, hopelessness, potential pandemic. We were already looking at a potential pandemic for the planet. Now, you know, who cares? None of us might be around to even enjoy the, the Earth pandemic, right? So I think with the onslaught of sensational, I call it sensationalism terrorism, meaning it's just promoting terrorism. We don't have something to anchor ourselves and our life to that is greater than the day-to-day news. They call it news. There's not very much news about it. For me, purpose relates to having our true north. It's not an end result for me so much as it's a line that I'm moving on. And intention is that line. I should say intention is everything that we hang on that line regarding productivity, communication, strategy, teamwork, everything that we hang on that line, which is a direction in which we are moving. And that to me is purpose. And process is more about purpose than purpose being some end result, because you're never going to get to that end result. You know, the richest people, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, they're not there yet. They're not there yet. So I think the less we think of purpose as a there, as a, as a point that we're getting to, and the more we think of purpose as the way we get, not get things, but get on the road, the way we get, the way we stay on our path and where we're going, the direction we're pointing in, this is what keeps us anchored and keeps us filled with hope rather than constantly having to fill ourselves with a new, a new tank every day. Yeah, yeah. And with that question comes the, 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 with the purpose question comes that unique mission that I feel like so many of us are born with, that sense of, uh, I got to make a difference in this world, in, in this life. So what is it about that uh, that, that would help us guide us uh, in the right direction, I guess, that sense of being, having that unique mission? I love that question because um, we're each born as an individual, we are each a miracle that has never, ever happened before. That unique, whether you call it combination, that unique identity. We each have a voice. 
and we each have a print and nobody, nobody has that voice, has ever had that voice or that print. And something interesting about destiny and voice as they tie together is voice actually means in French, voice and lane coming from the Latin roots, lane, like the lane on a highway, it's the exact same word. Our voice is the lane that we are in. And our destiny is a divine, um, uh, how can I describe it, responsibility, but it's not a personal responsibility, it's a divine responsibility. Uh, And no one can do it. So in one sense, we can feel like it's all up to me. Well, you are up to you and I'm up to me in more than one sense. I'm up to me and it's up to me to be me. But destiny is something we don't talk enough about. And as you know, in my causative woman programs, that's what I focus on is getting in the driver's seat of your own destiny. Mm-hmm. And again, like we were talking about before, getting past the day-to-day implementation and keeping our sights on, keeping our conversation on the bigger picture and how we pursue that thread. I call it the destinal thread, so the thread of who we were born to be and who we live to be. Have you ever experienced divine intervention in the pursuit of who you are becoming? Have you experienced that that moment that you call it divine intervention? And do you have a different word for it? When you say divine intervention, do you mean something that comes in and and either rescues us from a disaster or really helps us take a right turn where we thought we were heading left? Or are you talking about sort of like getting an initial launch by a divine message? I would say both, right? Because it just seems like at moments in our lives, uh, you meet the right person or you take some kind of action that gears you in a different direction than, than the previous that you're going. And it almost feels like magical. And, um, and so that's what I'm referring to, that sense that something magical just happened. Like you can't really explain it, but you feel that it's magical. I, I totally, I don't just believe in this. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I, I teach it. I rely on it, as you said, on both levels. First, by the way it launched me. I, I, I was studying. I had a, a three-year period uh, after a very, very successful career in international tourism. I had a three-year period where uh, everything had crashed. I, I had a failed marriage. I was raising a child alone, a baby alone. I couldn't work in my international travel and be a mom. So I, I was destitute of hope, direction, lost touch with my identity and my destiny, all of those things. And it, it thrust me into a very deep three-year um, spiritual search, studying all kinds of scriptures and uh, mystics, multiple traditions, and really seeking my own answers and getting totally in touch with the voice that I think I'd sensed as a child. This is something I think you were alluding to. We have a sense when we're kids, and then life seems to very, very consistently erode it. Like it just washes it and scrapes it away. And so it was those three years, which were three of the hardest years of my life, which was one of the first serious divine interventions like Susan you can travel all over the world and see every country in the world but guess what every place you go you bring you and there's (laughs) going to be something desperately familiar I was up in Machu Picchu in Peru when I said you know this is like the eighth time I've been here and it just feels sort of normal still like normal again and I realized you're here the first time (laughs) 
I realized first time you weren't here. It was just Machu Picchu. Oh my gosh. And then after the sixth time, it's like, you're here. And I didn't want that same eye. I didn't want her to be coming. And so I spent three years really changing that. That was the big thrust. But on a daily level, on a daily basis, I listen for that divine intervention. I'm poised. I'm always like, you know, like a football player when you see them and they're in the air ready to catch that ball and it may not come to them, but they're ready to catch it. And that's how I try to live my life and encourage everybody to. Yeah. Yeah. The sense of identity that you're talking about, because I once heard that most interesting people, they reinvent themselves. And so it's very, very cool to hear this process of you talking about, you know, finding some things about you that weren't necessarily in alignment with who you wanted to be and then having the courage to face that, right? And to yes. change it and to reinvent yourself. And, and it gives us freedom to know that we don't have to hold on to all of those things that don't really serve us. I know this is something that can be beneficial to all of our listeners because as we go through stages in our businesses and in our lives, there will be constant change um, yes. of everything. And so understanding that that's natural and part of the process and, and not putting yourself down because, um, you know, I used to think that because I changed my mind a lot, I was too wishy-washy. You know, I used to yeah, say like, yeah, yeah. man, you know, like I can't be decided on anything, but it's not really about that. It's really about being curious and being open. And that's something that is actually a great quality to have. It is. And when you talk about reinvention and reinventing ourselves, I'll say this, speaking from my own experience, you tell me if it rings any bells with you. I think we reinvent ourselves in terms of the how or the activity, specifically in terms of marketing and branding. You can reinvent yourself many times. But once you really find that destinal thread, once you hear it, once you get a sense of the direction in which you're, you've got to go, and by direction, I don't mean, I'll find a new demographic. That's not what I mean. <laughs> I mean, you really find what you're here for. And what you cannot die without, unless you're willing to really feel like you didn't live. In other words, you find the thing that you have to finish, you have to accomplish. And then that's not a reinvention. That's really, I think, when God takes over your life and sort of says, I'll be taking it from here on in, Susan. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and from that point on, you can change demographics. You can change um, audience, you know, you can change platforms. Maybe you're going to write more instead of speak more. You can change all kinds of things. That's reinvention. But finding that destinal thread and finding who you are meant to be, etc., that isn't your reinvention. That's your discovery of who and what you are that no one else is. Yeah, yeah. And for those of uh, of, of of the people out there listening that feel like they haven't found that yet. Um, how do they go about uh, finding that inner voice or that uniqueness, I guess? I love that question. I've puzzled over it a long time because of my clients over years. You know, I've done personal counseling and spiritual counseling work for 30 years. And I know so many people who are still stuck in first gear because you're saying, but what is it? What is it? What is it? What am I supposed to do? It's a what. And that's the trick. It's not a what. It's more of a way. The what can change, we think of some of the master branders of our times in business, like Richard Branson and, and Bill Gates and so many other truly, you know, big, big successful, financially successful people. I love Richard Branson because he can launch cruise ships, uh, 
would astronaut ships, yeah. you know, uh, rockets. He could sell records. He could start with ladies lingerie. We would just say, oh, that's Richard Branson. No problem. Right? Yeah, he, he has dabbed into so many different industries that have right. nothing to do with one another. Right. And that's something right. amazing for an entrepreneur. Yeah, it is. Sure. So I think that question that you're asking is, is always we always get off track when we're saying, but what is it? We will never start. Rather than who am I, and, and here's how I would say to start asking that question, is to focus on voice, on what you want to say that no one else is saying. Many, many books have been written, probably more books than not, have been written when somebody had an idea, they were looking for something, they wanted to find a book on it, they went to the bookstore and there was no book on it, so they said, darn it, I got to write it. <laughs> same thing. You, if you're looking for a teacher who will illuminate whatever it is and you can't find them, then that's your, that's your message, that's your voice. If you can find them, it's not your voice. That voice is taken. So one way to find your voice, I have two little guideposts. What is it that you would say if nobody were listening? If there's no risk of somebody judging, of it being ahead of its time or behind its time, what would you say if no one were listening? Not if everyone were listening, if no one was listening. And secondly, what is it you would say that you don't want to say? <laughs> Wish somebody else would say, that you hope to find the book, that you go to the conference looking for the person to say it. Mm -hmm. You will never find them. That's yours. And if you pursue those two questions, instead of, should I be a doctor, a lawyer, or an Indian chief, as we used to say, or a candlestick maker or a baker, stop looking for the what. That is actually just the how. Mm -hmm. Instead, look for the who. And that who is defined by those two questions. Not defined by it, but those two questions will help you find your who. And what could stand in the way of such quest? What could work uh, against it? What could be like the resistance? towards it. Right. So people think it's a lack of courage, fear of what people will think. All of that's true. It's, it's a little deeper than that. It's a two-year-old. It's a two-year-old saying, I don't want to. I know this two-year-old so well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when your mom and dad said, you know what you need to do is such and such or put on your raincoat or no, I don't want to. No, the logic of a two-year-old, I don't want to has no sense because for most of us, when our parents told us to do something, there was some logic to it. There was some sense. It was a protective sense, wasn't it? But it doesn't matter when you're two years old and three years old and four years old, you just don't want to. And that is at the root of it. I'll do it my way. Thank you very much. And some of it is I rather just pray and say that my prayers haven't been answered. I haven't seen the light. I don't have the picture. I can't, I didn't get the message. We're exonerated because we've been looking so hard, Sabrina, and trying so hard. So we're exonerated, right? We're doing everything we can. And we blame life or we blame the divine for not giving us the secret message. It's not true. It's right there in front of our eyes, waiting for us to stop saying, mm, not now, mm, not quite ready, mm, not me. That's all it is. And it's not about courage. It's about stubborn defiance, I think. Courage, you need along the way, and you'll certainly lack it. <laughs> but it's not the main thing. The main thing is, you know what you're here to do. You know what you're supposed to say. You know what you're supposed to stand for. And you don't want to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How, do you, how would you go about helping, let's say, a client that shows those signs of... Uh, 
that defiance that is not really going to be helpful, right? The kind of defiance, because I mean, obviously everything is a paradox, right? So, I mean, you right. can have the kind of defiance that uh, allows you to come into your freedom, but you can have the kind of defiance that keeps you hostage to to not letting it come out, right? Hostage exactly. to a self that doesn't really serve you or serves the web, let it alone, um, you know, the little corner of the world that you could be making influence or a difference at. Um, how, how would you advise someone to go about facing this defiance, I guess? I love that question. Um, how do we go about facing the defiance and whether we ever defeat it, but at least becoming its master to some degree? I love that. Um, well, that's what the causative woman program and training really focuses on. And the way I say it is we're all hanging on to something that doesn't serve us. We don't want it. And this gets back to, I'll interrupt myself. <laughs> uh, this gets back to what you were talking about, inherited conversations. We have things that we carry around with us. They don't serve us. We don't want them. We, quote, like to get rid of them. But at the same time, we are hanging on to them for dear life. And the, there is a way to to learn how to unclasp that hold, right? But it's not by chanting or uh, affirmations or anything like that, because that's just putting more data into an overstuffed bank, so to speak. There's a way to um, dismantle its hold, uh, which is, I don't want it. I don't need it. It doesn't serve me, but quote, I can't let it go. And that's the work I do specifically in the Causative Women course and in the Causative Women subsequent programs, the graduate program. We learn what that defiance is made of and how to, I would say, play with it, how to take it apart without you feeling threatened or the defiance itself just reacting. So it's not, it, I can't go into detail here, but there is a way. It's to see what it's made of, up of and see through it rather than try to crush it, overcome it, oppress it, talk at it is a different way, which is a lot easier. It's actually quite fun, a little bit funny and extremely effective. And it makes you causative, makes women causative instead of, as you introduce the subject today, instead of living life reactively. Yeah, yeah, that would be so wonderful. If we, if we finally get to a place that we're a lot less reactive and a lot more causative, right? Um, also, I think it has a little bit, I, I, I don't know, it might be just an interesting point of view, right? Uh, but I, I'm curious to find out from you, uh, as you know, we're focusing mostly on women, this podcast is not only for entrepreneur women, uh, but I know that you have worked with a lot of women and, um, and I know that you can help uh, a lot of women to to face all of the things that they're trying to accomplish because you have faced it yourself. And how does age really, uh, what would it mean to age well, in your opinion? I'm curious about that. For Great. women especially, I think. Yeah, how to age well. I do want to just say that I've only focused on women in the last year up for the, really most of my career. I've always, the work is is absolutely um, homogeneous. It's actually totally integrated for men or women because what I focus on is the human condition, the phenomena we find as human beings that we're all facing, but we somehow think this is my own very personal problem or my very own personal shortcoming. So I wanted to add that parenthetically. 
And I think for men and women, both aging is, is a challenge. And I would, uh, I think, let's see, I think I would frame it, Sabrina, in the context of stages, what I call stages. As I mentioned earlier, if you are in your 50s or 60s, but you're actually, because you've raised a family or whatever you've been doing in the interim, you're launching a new career parallel to a 23-year-old, you're something at the same stage in life. You're just beginning something anew. But the difference is the age factor. So whereas an older person might be thinking of this stage as their third act, a younger person is thinking of it as their first act, right? Or their first main act. And, um, or their second act where they're really going to build their career, their empire, their, their mission. And I think the challenge with age is the conversation around it is you've had your run. You, you have to sort of begin to wind down, pack it in, uh, dismantle things, get rid of stuff so that when you make an exit, it's, it's, it's a clean exit and you don't create too much, you don't leave too much stuff behind and too much problems for other people. It's a current. And that current is created by conversations around it. Of course, what we're seeing now is, you know, 70 is the new 50 and 80 is the new 60. So we have to redesign what aging is. And there is no question that aging, that to age grace, not gracefully, because that's one of those sayings, but to age uh, powerfully and to stay causative, you have to stay curious, you have to renew that vision, and you have to be extremely alert to the context and the conversation, I'll say context, conversation, and the current that is always pulling you to decline, to decline, mm-hmm. and instead lean in, incline yourself to an infinite future. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. Do you find that also that different cultures deal with this in a different way? I mean, I know that you have, uh, your husband is from France, you've lived in so many different countries and, and been in associated with so many different cultures. Uh, What is it that we Americans can learn from different countries when it comes to aging and reinventing yourself or uh, like you were saying earlier in building businesses that have significance and purpose and a mission and all of that? Well, I think it's sort of a broad subject because we go from aging to building businesses. But just to touch on aging first, you know, as a Brazilian, (laughs) <laughs> uh, Latin cultures have a completely different relationship to um, to women as they age. Uh, France, particularly, I'm lucky. France has a fixation with older women. I mean, they think women come into their prime around age 50. It's great. You're walking down the street in America. You're invisible. You walk down <laughs> the street in France and they're like, wow, look at that. So it's sort of fun. I think in Arab cultures, it's different still. In Asian cultures, there's a great respect for the woman as the sage as she gets older. So it's a different thing. It's not quite so lively and so sexy and so fun. Um, Americans are very fixated on youth. I think there's something in the culture that invites it. We are disposable. Not just we are disposable. We live in a disposable culture. We live in a culture where products are, uh, are designed with planned obsolescence. They are strategized. Computers are designed. Why don't we, why can't we get a five-year insurance plan for our computers? Because they are specifically designed to last no more than three years. And um, everything is young, maybe because we're a young country and maybe because in America, we were always expanding into new, into virgin, into uncharted territories, right? 
is not quite so much uncharted territory in a woman who's 65. So just as a culture, consumerism is by nature, and our, our society is extremely consumeristic. Um, we are disposable. We throw things away. Um, we're proud for many, many years, decades in America. We're very proud that we could throw everything away. Um, in foreign countries, as you know, well, Brazil is a young country, but in Europe, they had to recycle. You know, they had to use every every ounce of the animal they slaughtered and every piece of the grain that they harvested. So I think it's a, a psychology that is uh, defined uh, geographically mm-hmm. and uh, ours is defined in terms of consumerism. And it's at an enormous loss. We, we waste huge resources because people over 60, over 55 have so much to give because they've made so many mistakes already. They're not going to repeat them. Yes, absolutely. So as we go back into women that you admire, um, if you could choose a woman to have dinner with, and um, it could be from the past, from the present, who would she be? <laughs> well, as more and more women become famous, and <laughs> we dig them up from history, right? They didn't even exist, and now we discover that they defined their century or their decade. So that's a difficult question. Um, and I'm a quite a latecomer to the subject of feminism, which is why I call it the new feminism, because I'm, I'm not exactly joining the feminism of the 60s. I missed all that. So, but I would say that probably one of a handful of women I am fascinated by is Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who founded the women's movement in the United States of America. And um, because of her radical spirit, first of all, she was a mother. She had seven children. After five, she kept saying there would be no more. And there were two more. And back then, I'll just mention that women nursed their children for 18 to 24 months. So when you had a child, it was a three-year commitment. In spite of this, she launched this movement. It spread throughout the United States. She almost did it single-handedly. Susan B. Anthony joined her later. And in her last years, as an older woman, with enormous spiritual foundation and spiritual drive, she um, was ousted out of her own movement because of her radical commitment and belief and her writings that said God was a divine, whether you call it principle or being, that incorporated all of the female qualities as well as the male. And the women's movement said, we can't have this kind of radical redefinition of God going on when we're trying to get the vote And so they expelled her from her own movement when she was in her late 70s or 80s. And uh, they moved forward thinking the vote alone would define things, which we have seen it has not. Because if we don't have that ground and that destiny embedded in the actions that we are taking, if we're not on that line of intention going towards where we're going, and if we get waylaid by the stops on the line, like getting the vote, we will lose our true north. And she was someone who never did, but we lost her in the process. That's a very interesting story. And so many people are considering themselves spiritual nowadays, but not wanting to be affiliated to any specific church or, um, I guess, uh, religion. Uh, Why is it that you decided, uh, because I know you spent some time uh, affiliated with certain institutions, and now you've you come to a more secular uh, in your efforts. Uh, why is it that you've made that move? And what does that mean to all of us? Mm. 
Good question. Um, so it does sound secular, and I'm still working at trying to evolve a language that can be spiritual without being a specific sect, because you end up with either sect or secular. What I didn't want in my own work was anything that said to anybody, you're on the outside of something that I'm on the inside of. And as soon as you get in to my circle, club, language, creed, book, then you're going to have something you don't have now. I think that's fatal. I think that's wrong. I just think it's wrong, meaning incorrect. So I was looking for a language that would focus people on their innate spirituality, meaning their innate, what every single person has, which is their relationship to divine guidance, to divine uh, beingness, um, which is not them, but which they fully express and have access to. Uh, so it's not that we're all gods, but we all have a relationship to that which is God. And um, I just wanted something that not was inclusive, but that was by its infinite nature couldn't be ex inclusive because it couldn't be exclusive. I mean, you have inclusive, you have exclusive. Mm -hmm. And spirituality is not exclusive. It's its nature. Yeah, you, you didn't want to create something that would go with like us and them, right? Exactly. You wanted, uh -huh. Yeah, that's really cool. And um, what is it that as we are coming close to the end of this beautiful interview, talking about women and spirituality and voice and finding our purpose, what is one thing that you feel that we should have talked about and we didn't address today? Oh my gosh, you have such an innate uh, breadth, you know, you, you're, the way you articulate and your vision and your ability to encapsulate is, is just so furthering of a conversation that, that has impact. I know this one will. I would say uh, one of the main things that I talk about in my public speaking, which is conversation itself. We don't realize that we are always buying into conversations as we touched on there. Most of them are inherited. Um, Many of them are inherited, but even the new ones, the, I'll speak specifically about women. Men have their own conversations. They are force-fed, educated in, from children. It's just a different dialogue. But these conversations are the space in which we live because what takes up most of our day, in spite of what we're doing, is the inner narrative we are running parallel to whatever we're doing. Like right now, we're having this conversation and it's a little piece of us at least at times it pokes in and says, oh, here I am. I'm having a video podcast conversation with Sabrina Gagnon, right? There's always someone talking at us. Um, and so the conversations that are formed for us as women tell us how to live, what to do, when to do it, if we should do it, why we should do it. And then we make all kinds of decisions within that st linguistic structure first. And the interesting thing is that empowerment, so-called women's empowerment, has done the exact same thing. It's still telling us what we should do, how we should do it. You know, stay-at-home moms have a terrible time nowadays, as if they're just tied to a kitchen chair and anybody who wants to devote themselves to the responsibility they've taken on to raise children is like living in the dark ages. This is a terrible thing. And so, but where did it come from? It came from a popular conversation that is telling us how we should do, what we should do, when we should do it, and if we should do it. You with me? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So these, those are the inherited conversations, redefined as so-called empowerment. 
But there are all kinds of other conversations, consumerism conversations. And I think much of what consumes women conversations, you are your story, um, um, your feelings, what do you really feel? Share your feelings, share your thoughts. It's an overemphasis of the dramatic, overemphasis of you are your feelings and your thoughts. No, you are actually what you do with them. And the contribution you make to society and mankind, our humankind, in the process. So I love talking about freedom from conversations, not just what women buy, but what we buy into and how to stay alert to that so that we get to stay in, get in, and then stay in the driver's seat of our own destiny. Oh, I love that. So beautiful put. But, and, you know, and I think I, I have uh, seen this in working with different clients sometimes that uh, as we address the fact that we as women, we are very in touch with feelings, right? And, mm -hmm. and you mentioned uh, the thing about moods, you know, and, and how do you not necessarily ignore that they're there or repress right. them, but that you, what do you do with them, right? When you're overwhelmed with all of this moodiness, I guess, that we all go yeah. through and what do you do with it? Do you succumb and you create drama in your life? Uh, or do you take that energy and you put it towards whatever it is, your vision, right, of where you're moving? And we're all going to have good days and bad days. And we're going to have days that we are not necessarily, at least we don't feel, um, you know, on top of our game or whatever it is that you want to say. Uh, yes. But the important thing is to not linger there as if it defines you, right? And I love that. Exactly. It's so true. And we, and just adding to that, we always think in terms of what I call A or B. Years ago, we used to go into a Chinese restaurant. There was always a menu that had an A column and a B column. And you could pick one from here and two from here or two from A and one from B. And the mind always operates, as I say, like a Chinese menu. It's the A and the B. So do I honor these feelings and these moods and and respect them and voice them and share them with everybody and write an article and post it? Or do I ignore it and shove it under the rug because it's in the way of where I'm going and I'm going to crush it and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nail it and I'm going to dominate? Well, these are both really bad options. And what I prove and do, what I do and I prove it's possible in the, in the work I do in the causative woman training and programs is to discover what moods are made of. And when you see what they're made of, you see them as distinct from who you are. Um, you know, when you're little or when you're a very young woman, probably we still do this, but you get a bad haircut. Your whole world, your whole world is colored by it, right? <laughs> or you break a nail, you know, you break a nail. It's a big issue. At some point, you sort of grow up and you got a bad haircut and you have to go back and it's an extra five hours and whatever. But it's not you. It's not what you're up to. And likewise, you break a nail or something much more serious and you have to work through it. You go through it, but you're very clear. It's not you. So the options of indulge, develop, expound on, or don't acknowledge it. These are, these are traditional, outdated um, programs that both the, mas the feminine were fed and then the masculine were fed. And neither one works. But as we discover what is genuine identity and our destinal thread and where we're going and discover the joy and the freedom of being committed to that, 
We suffer lots of stuff along the way, but we know what it's made of and we know it's not essentially who we are. Love that. Thank you so much, Susan, for being here today with us and for sharing all of this beautiful words of wisdom uh, and so much work that you've done to come to this place. And the world is definitely a better place because of you and all of the dedication and love that you put out there with all well, of the people that you work with. So thank you. And thank you, you're amazing. I'm a fan and I'll continue to follow you. So thank you. Likewise from my side. Thanks for joining us today. To join our free Facebook group and access the links and resources mentioned in the shows and much more, go to www.sabrina-gagnon.com. That is G-A-G-N-O-N. You will become a member of a private Facebook group dedicated to providing the best practices, skills, and strategies to grow your business. And remember, we all have natural advantages that comes from our instinctive power. You are perfectly created to accomplish so much. Let's challenge the status quo and create a business and life you love. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.